Hello and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today on the program, we have Dion Griffin-Presley. Hello, Dion. Hey, hey, how's it going, Garrett and Jim? It's going great. We're so glad to have you here. I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much for reaching out, you know. A little bit about Dion Griffin-Presley. Dion is a New York City-based actor, playwright, and poet. Uh, who's appeared off-Broadway and in regional theaters, including Actor Shakespeare Project, Shakespeare and Company, the Philadelphia Shakespeare Theater, the Hypocrite Theater Company, the American Globe Theater, and many others. Uh, Dion has studied theater at the British American Drama Academy at Oxford University. That's, uh, that's over there in England. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's over there across the pond. When were you there? You know, it's funny because, you know, I uh, when I was 18, I did the National Shakespeare Competition, and I was very fortunate to get second place, and this lovely, fantastic actress by the name of Bronwyn Reed got first place. And it's so funny because the first day we got off the plane, we were there for a duration of like uh, three to four days, and instantly we became good friends. And uh, she got first, I got second, and it turned out that, you know, she had already done a program similar to that the year before, and she ended up hand, I, she ended up giving me the second, the first place prize along with, you know, the second place prize. So I got oh, both wow. in one boodle. It was a, a bolus of a blessing. I mean, it was really amazing. So, you know, it was it was really one of those things. And uh, I, I truly believe because, you know, women are absolutely incredible and they make those sacrifices or give those silent blessings. I was able to get that because she was, you know, she truly, truly was a fantastic person and had a heart to do it. So I went to the Globe there. I was at um, Oxford University. I went to Shakespeare's, you know, house, huh. uh, Stratford of Avon. Um, it was just, it was just fantastic. It was, <laughs> it was one of the once in a lifetime, I think, kind of blessings. And yeah. And had you, had you before that, before the um, English speaking union contest, had you been a Shakespeare fan or was it just something you were like, Hey, I'll give this a go. Oh yeah. I've been a Shakespeare fan since I was like in ninth grade. I got introduced to Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio when he was in, you know, we watched the movie and stuff and, I remember in 10th grade, I was like, you know, we were, we were reading Julius Caesar and <laughs> it wow. was, you know, people, kids in the class were like talking stuff as we listened to the audio and stuff. And I was shutting people up to listen to Shakespeare because it seemed so, so ancient and so raw. It was so like, it was so visceral, especially when the soothsayer came in and, you know, he was like, beware the eyes of Marge Caesar. And I was like, whoa, what's that? <laughs> it was it was it was something about that text that really excited me, um, and uh, I've been hooked ever since. You know, I've uh, been writing own sonnets. I've written over two hundred sonnets, and I've written several plays and iambic pentameter. And I'm very fortunate to keep getting booked to work for doing Shakespeare. So, <laughs> yeah, you said in our in our pre-interview conversation, you said that um, you'd been doing Shakespeare, just just Shakespeare for the last five years. It sounds like you've kind of found a home at Shakespeare and Company. I found a home at Shakespeare and Company. And I tell you, it's, it was divine order. I got in at the last minute, right when they were changing artistic direction. And, you know, it was it was just completely amazing. John Croy auditioned me along with Ariel Bach. And I got in and I hadn't even met the woman of will herself yet, Tina Packer. You know, uh, I had, but I was being cast in her show. And then, you know, she seemed to be very fond of what I was doing. We did Merchant of Venice the first year. And um, 
she asked me to come back the next year. And then Alan Burroughs is also, who is now the new artistic director of the company. He uh, was doing Tempest that year and directing Tempest that year. And Tina was directing Cymbeline. And, you know, as that was, we did Tempest outside in the new Roman garden theater. And we did Cymbeline inside with, um, at the Tina Packer playhouse. And I just have a big family here now. It's just like, it's a, it's truly amazing. Um, and I've been just, I think my love for music, I, I can go back a little bit. My love, my love for music. I started off doing musical theater when I was 12. You know, the Wiz, the West side story. I played the lion and the Wiz. I played Tony and West side story. And once I met Shakespeare though, there was a difference in how like, there was a freshness or a technique I, I found in doing Shakespeare that made me learn how to sing even better. Like there, is, there was a grounding in doing Shakespeare's poetry that allowed me to open up, you know, access to my entire body because, you know, Shakespeare requires you to act from the bones <laughs> because, right. you know, yeah. the very much Elizabethan way of doing it. You have to give your entire body to it. And, you know, I've found a bigger voice in me, you know, like a larger voice, you know, they're all kind of married together for me. <laughs> oh, that, you know, it's, it's fascinating you say that because a lot of times we talk, when we talk to actors, they say their musical theater or their music background informs their work in Shakespeare, but you just reversed it. You just flipped it. Um, and I find that, <laughs> I find that really, really awesome. Um, but do you find that your musical theater training or background um, has informed your work on Shakespeare? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It is music to me. I, I, I truly approach the work looking at it as music because of it. If it's poetry, it's music. That's the way I look at it. If it has a rhythm, if it has like a certain like flow, it's music. You can literally sing the text like you can sing a sonnet. So you are at um, the Shakespeare and Company and you are heading into a season where you're going to be playing Sebastian in Twelfth Night but also in yeah. Top Dog and Underdog. Top Dog, Underdog. I'm going to be playing Booth in Top Dog, Underdog by Susan Laurie Parks, the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. And this will be your yeah. first non-Shakespeare role in five years. And by five years. The last play I did that wasn't Shakespeare was Painted Red by Cynthia Robinson with Sacred Ground Productions. How do you find that being so immersed in Shakespeare informs your work in a modern play. You know, it's funny because even approaching it this way, looking at Lincoln and Booth and looking at the history, you know, 1861, you know, to 1865, that still has that classical element to it, that classical taste that I adore. So I'm still looking at it with that kind of aesthetic and only just changing the rhythm. You know, so now it's a little more as I've been as a play I've written called Hoodsical. It's a, it's not classical. It's Hoodsical. It's like it's Shakespeare, but it's got a flair of like my roots, you know, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Pompano, uh, Miami. It has all that energy, but it still has that classical Hoodsical like growl to it. Full disclosure to our listeners. Uh, Dion, you went to the American Musical and Dramatic Academy where you and I crossed paths in the classroom, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. And I remember <laughs> you well. What was what was your first step post-AMDA? <laughs> it wasn't even <laughs> acting at first. I got some stage managing work, and I watched pros, like, act. So that was like, I was just sitting back and watching. I got paid, like, a $50 stipend, um, and 
Ward Nixon was directing this uh, production, uh, Laundry and Bourbon, something mm-hmm. like that, at Shetler. And it was, uh, I did that show, and I was, like, stage managing and, like, calling the show, and it was, like, a minor thing, but I was just so excited to get out and just act. And then, you know, I ended up doing my own thing. I played Cap Calloway in a stage reading called Lena, and I... um. I wrote, I write plays as well. So um, I wrote a play and it got into the Manhattan Theater Festival Club uh, spring and produced that. I've just been a renaissance man all throughout New York. So that's kind of been my theme um, since I left AMDA. That's been like, that's pretty much been my groove, you know, writing plays and acting and Shakespeare. <laughs> Creating your own work, it sounds like, and just making, making work happen. Making my work, yeah. Yeah. But more so for me, it's really writing plays has never really been for me. It's although it's a lot of fun to do. I I'll, I I just have been writing it because I have so many friends that are actors that you know have not been able to get consistent work. So I've been wanting to kind of like produce it so that they can work, whether they're actors, directors, or stage managers, or what have you. You know, because there's so much talent and there's so much you can do within building your own community and um, supporting each other at that. Garrett, yes. Do you have a question about Sebastian? I do. <laughs> so, to the task at hand, you are now preparing to play Sebastian in Twelfth Night at Shakespeare and Company, directed by Alan Burroughs. Mm-hmm. Uh, for our listeners, could you let us let us know who is Sebastian? And wow, you know, it's so funny. I'm still learning who Sebastian is. You know, and so, um, you know, he was this character. Just based on my research, where I am now. Um, was written because of Shakespeare's son. Shakespeare was inspired to write these twins based off of his son, Hamnet, who passed away at 11 years old. He was a twin. He had a twin sister. Sebastian in this play to me is really like a stand-up guy. He's a, he's a sweetheart. He's a tough guy. However, he truly, truly, truly loves his sister and is in deep mourning in the very beginning of the play until he can, until he sort of like gets peace of mind and like runs out into the city of uh, Illyria and just like accepts and meets a woman. (laughs) 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 He meets a woman, woman, Olivia, who mistakes him for his sister. So, so it's just, so it takes place on this, on Illyria, which is, it's a strange land. It is a strange land. Is more or less washed up on this shore, looking for his sister, and mm. he runs into Olivia, who is she's kind of the she's kind of the, the the big deal in town, right? They're kind of two really powerful people in town. There's Olivia and Orsino that kind of run everything. Yeah, and uh, there are all sorts of love triangles going on because Orsino is in love with Olivia, and Olivia isn't mm-hmm. having it. And what's crazy is I don't think he's ever seen her before. <laughs> you know? I don't think he's ever seen her. Orsino's never seen Olivia, and he's just like, I'm in love. I've heard so much about her. I, just, I want love. Right, and meanwhile, yeah. meanwhile, this, this, the missing sister has shown up on this shore as well. She's, she's got reasons of her own for being undercover, and she's dressed up. Mm-hmm. As a man, and of course, uh, no one can tell these two apart. And and Sebastian and his sister are running around this island, running constantly, running into people who mistake 
them for the other. It takes exactly. it takes basically the entire play for them to figure out that they are they are both there in the same place at the same time and have been all along. So Absolutely. this play, this play, Twelfth Night, like many of Shakespeare's plays, it depends on the comedy of mistaken identity. And for mm-hmm. myself, for myself, I must admit that sometimes I feel that this makes the other characters in the play seem less observant and frankly stupider than I want them to be. <laughs> does, does that make sense? <laughs> it totally makes absolutely. The audience the audience has to suspend their disbelief about it. Yeah. But I wonder I wonder if you have any insight into how to make how to make this kind of comedy work for the audience. You know, it's kind of difficult to kind of answer this question in this particular this particular production it's different in the sense that my sister my twin sister is being played by ella loudon who is caucasian white and i'm african <laughs> golden that makes so, it more stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so it's gonna get even more and i was telling alan the other day, it was just like the joke of this whole thing is that race is a joke. And when you really look at people as aura, you look at people as personalities and as spirits, you'll actually find yourself united or, you know, hanging out with a certain person that has your sort of energy field, if that makes any sense. Of course, we're twins. We act just alike. Our whole vibe is just alike. So so if I understand what you're saying, you're saying that the characters, all of the characters in, in the play are colorblind. And there's a lesson mm-hmm. in there for the audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even people coming to see it and, and, you know, expecting the twins to look just alike. They never really look just alike when you really right. look at people. You know right. what I'm saying? They, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, unless you're casting actual twins. I mean, actual twins. And even actual twins don't exactly look alike. You know, it's just like there's always something that's different. Something that's that's a detail, a couple details that are missing, that are different that we just miss that we don't take the time to look at and and or take the time to see and even with racial profiling i mean wow i think this is saying a lot about that (laughs) when um you kind of like so many men that have been you know assassinated by police officers because they looked like someone else but if you had taken if we take the time to really see and, and it, on many occasions learn someone's name, as there would be a lot more, uh, a lot more details, a lot more, um, a lot more understanding, more understanding, more understanding. Absolutely. So what this, the, the, this production in particular has a lot more to say than just the mere surface level slapstick comedy. Absolutely. Well, you're about to do, you, you, we've asked you to do a speech, and you're going to do Sebastian's speech from Act 4, Scene 3 in Twelfth Night. It's fairly well known. It appears in a lot of monologue books, and a lot of, a lot of actors will, will take it on for auditions and that sort of thing. It's the, this is the air, that is the glorious sun speech. So can you, can you give us the setup for the speech? What's, what's just happened? Well, Olivia's just uh, mistaken me for... Cesario, which is my sister, a.k.a. Viola, uh, and she's taken me into her estate and kind of wooed me. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I'm just coming out of the uh, apartment or excuse me, the house palace (laughs) and taking it all in after she's giving me this pearl. Well, why don't we hear the speech? Fantastic. Let's do it. Uh, This is Dion Griffin Presley uh, doing Sebastian from Twelfth Night, Act Four. Scene three. This is the air. That is the glorious sun. 
This pearl she gave me, I do feel it and see it. And though tis wonder that enwraps me thus, yet tis not madness. Where's Antonio then? I could not find him at the elephant, yet there he was, and there I found this credit that he did range the town to seek me out. Uh, his counsel now might do me golden service, for though my soul disputes well with my sense, that this may be some error, but no madness. <laughs> Yet doth this accident and flood of fortune so far exceed all instance, all discourse, that I am ready to distrust mine eyes and wrangle with my reason that persuades me to any other trust but that I am mad. Or else the lady's mad. <laughs> Yet if twere so, she could not sway her house, command her followers, take and give back affairs and their dispatch with such a smooth, discreet, and stable bearing as I perceive she does. There's something in that's deceivable. Oh, but here the lady comes. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> so here's Sebastian, and he's he's met this wonderfully beautiful, rich woman that mm -hmm. for some reason appears to be completely enamored with him. Yeah. That's a wonderful miracle. It reminds me of, for some reason, it reminds me of Chris Rock. <laughs> when <laughs> Chris Rock wow. talks about, when Chris Rock talks about dating, and he says mm -hmm. that when you're dating, you haven't even met the person that you're dating. You've only met their representative. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a really human situation, I think. Oh, it's very human. Yeah. This play is like all about unveiling. It's like, you know, everybody was taking things off, you know, that don't fit and trying to figure out what their heart really looks like. <laughs> Most people in this play are avoiding their heart chakra, trying to find that inner love. And it's scary and it's, it's exciting, but it's also very scary. And like, Sebastian's just like, whoa, I never even thought of it. That's love, but it's real because that happens to people all the time yeah. when they're not looking for love. It just shows up and then you're just like, oh wow, what, what it is but I'll take it. Yeah, but there's always that there's always that bit of doubt, isn't there? And because and that yeah. becomes this those that little seed of doubt becomes, you know, it turns into jealousy in some cases, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Or in, insecurity or fear of commitment. There's a flip side to that magical falling in love feeling. A little darker underbelly. And this play has lots of dark underbellies, that's for sure, right? Definitely a lot of dark underbellies. <laughs> yeah, but in this moment, in this moment, Sebastian's problem is either he is mad or the lady is mad. Mm -hmm. And either one of yeah. those situations is, is not necessarily satisfying. I wonder, is Sebastian the type of guy who's willing to get with a crazy woman if she's as beautiful and rich as Olivia is? <laughs> you know, that's a good question. I'm going to explore the guy and get back to you. But you know what? <laughs> Would he do that? Uh, I don't think he thinks she's crazy. That's the part that's deceivable. That's why he's just like, there's something in that's deceivable. But here the lady comes. It's just like, she wouldn't, uh, she could not sway her house, command her followers, take and give back affairs and their dispatch with such a smooth, discreet and stable bearing as I perceive she does. And he's, and he's just like, she wouldn't just give me all of this stuff if she was crazy. Would she? You know, I don't, I, I don't think he thinks she's crazy. He's doubting himself. <laughs> right. I think, I, and I think that makes the, 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 the speech active for sure. Yeah, Shakespeare gives us all these wonderful comic speeches where the characters seem to totally convince themselves of one thing in one line. And mm. then the very next line, 
they throw themselves back into confusion again and go the opposite way. It's it's that constant, like you know that <laughs> the the demon on one shoulder and the, the angel on the other. <laughs> like, right. You constantly figure out: Should I believe this? Should I believe that? We're all just you know very, pretty much trying to be a Libra when it comes to love, unsure of what to do. <laughs> we don't know. We're trying to balance it. It's a it's a scary thing. It's a feminine thing to be in love. Yeah, because that's an amazing beautiful. observation that it's a feminine thing to be in love oh, it's and so, a vulnerable thing. And we all have that feminine element in us. We have a feminine and masculine. You know, uh, I was talking to a friend about it. I was telling her. I said I believe that men naturally have a feminine soul, and I believe that women have a masculine soul. However, we don't quite, and we mirror each other. You know, when we're looking or seeing each other, we're mirroring each other physically, but we both have like each other's opposite souls. My generation, millennial generation and the generations come, we're kind of like redefining what it is to be masculine and feminine and all these identity politics, which is important. And this play is a big, big identity politics play. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, you hit upon one of my favorite lines in the speech, which is there's something in it that's deceivable. And that can go a, a wide variety of ways because to Garrett's point earlier about the, asking the audience to take a leap of faith with you know, not mm -hmm. seeing people for who they are, that could be a tip of the hat to the audience. Wow, yeah. thanks. <laughs> oh, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with oh, you, yeah. Jim. I think that, that that's a moment where the audience knows much more uh, than Sebastian does about this situation. Yeah. And in the spirit mm -hmm. of you know, winking at irony, Right. Oh, Rob is definitely responding. Yeah. yeah, there's something deceivable about the whole play. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think you had Kate as a teacher as well at AMDA, and you know, oh, Kate's, Kate's amazing. How is she? She's fantastic. <laughs> She's doing great. Oh, great. Yeah. She always says like you can you can actually get to people more deeply through comedy than just straightforward you know drama, and she you know. So you think about how you're making people laugh, but then at the very end, you know, if the people in the audience don't say, well, what happened to Malvolio and Antonio and Belch? Where, where, or not Belch, Belch is okay. Um, uh, who, what's the, uh, Agu Cheek. What happens to those three guys? Mm. And, if, and, you know, that, it's a nice question to ask in the midst of all this, you know, love and humor and comedy. It's like, there's still some people who are not accounted for. And I think you get to that point if you make people laugh first. Exactly. Laughing is, it's, yeah, it's definitely good for the solar plexus. <laughs> it opens the portals, you know, all of the, the stuff that we're holding back. It frees up the, the space. I can definitely agree with that. One last question about this speech itself, and just to get into the wordplay just a little bit. Actually, the verse, rather. Um, the speech appears to be really, really regular through lines, lines one through ten. The meter um, is iambic without any uh, irregular feet that I can find anyway. And then mm. there are a couple lines that are irregular there in a row, 11 and, and 12, I think. Is that correct, Jim? Yes, of course. Yeah, 12 looks okay. Um, but then yeah. there's 14 and 17. It gets a little funky. But, one of the, mm. but something that is notable about the speech is how very regular it is. And I wonder if there's anything in that that speaks to you as an actor interpreting this character uh, or this moment. Yeah, oh, whoa, whoa, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this, um, yeah, well, really so, taking to think. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. Also, I mean, the first ten lines or so are about Antonio. Where's Antonio? I mean, there you have this is the air, this is the glorious sun, the pearl she gave me. That's the grounding part. And then he talks about Antonio. And then right around line 11 is where he gets back on the subject of Olivia and her strange, unfounded love for him. And so maybe he is, you know, maybe the meter is mirroring the way he's feeling, which is... Or maybe now he's, like, feeling a little bad. Maybe he's actually got a, a couple of feelings for Antonio. <laughs> oh, well, then there's that, too. <laughs> there's that. Who knows what's going on? It's like, oh, man, before I cheat, where's my friend? <laughs> where's the guy who's actually in love with me? Oh, Dion, this has been terrific. I, it's been such a joy to hear your voice again and to have a chat with you. Jim, it's a joy, man. I got to have, like, coffee or tea with you or something. And you guys are more than welcome to come up here and come see the show. You definitely have two comps on me. Whatever you want to do, just hit me up. You know, oh. I would love to see both. Thank you so much, Dion. That is fantastic. If we are in the area, I am coming. Yeah, it's going to be gorgeous this summer. And on top of that, there's a lover's garden that has been made out there. It's Shakespeare's lover's garden, plowed and, you know, mulched by yours truly. And there will be all <laughs> kinds of vegetables and flowers out there. And uh, you're more than welcome to have some of that stuff, too. And if you want to kind of like. All right, I'm coming like and- <laughs> 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 All right, I'll see you, man. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. This has been a lot of fun. And it's great preparation, you know, for rehearsals. We start on Tuesday. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank absolutely. you, Dion. It's thank been you. great talking to you. When does, um, when does Twelfth Night at Shakespeare Company open? Definitely. You can go to Shakespeare.org. And uh, check out the website. You're going to be in Twelfth Night at Shakespeare and Company starting July 2nd. You're going to be Top Dog, Underdog. I'm looking at your picture right now. And that starts on sure. August 13th. You've got a big summer ahead of you. Oh, man, it's a full summer, man. It's a full summer, but it's worth it. And there's a lake up here, too, where I swim, you know, Lenox Beach across, all the way across and back and just clear my mind. I'm telling you, it's like the best place to do Shakespeare. New England. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dion. Have a good one. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare.